Thank you for this time in your holy word. We do ask you would be merciful to those in our building and all over this globe who are strangers to your saving grace that is only found in God the Son, the Lord Jesus. Father, have mercy on our boys and girls downstairs and as their teachers label for their, labor for their souls and open up the scriptures to them. If it pleases you, please call every one of them savingly to Jesus Christ. And to people in this room, some of whom perhaps are not in the Savior, we pray that your word may prove powerful today to draw them in, in the power even of the Holy Spirit. Many of us are your blood-bought children. We rejoice and thank you for Christ Jesus, his sacrificial atoning death in our behalf on Calvary's cross. We pray that now as we open up and study and consider this portion of your word, may it accomplish every purpose that you intended to in us. We open our hearts to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Looking at the title slide again, there we are. We're going to be spending some weeks here on the new covenant, Israel and us. Let me give you an idea of where this is going. So as I already mentioned, we're mainly going to be in Jeremiah chapter 31 and its sister, parallel passage, Ezekiel 36, looking at what it teaches us about the new covenant and what are the implications of that for the old covenant. As we go here and there, we'll talk about, well, what are the implications of this part for the nation of Israel, currently in unbelief and mass? And we'll also look at what are the implications for us, Gentile or new covenant Israeli believers, what are the implications of this new covenant for us, even for how we do evangelism and how we recognize and identify true converts? There are many implications that will come to us about Israel and us in this. But we're going to be in Jeremiah 31, so let me, we're going to take our time here, and I'm going to give you some intro to Jeremiah and to Jeremiah 31. Jeremiah is, of course, one of the major prophets. There are major prophets. Why are they major? Their books are long. And there are minor prophets. Why are they minor? Their books are short. And then they're arranged in the Bible, first the major, then the minor. Jeremiah is one of the great major prophets of the Old Testament. He gave us, he, by the Spirit of God, wrote for us the books of Jeremiah, long, and Lamentations, long. Someone has said that Jeremiah 31 is one of the most important passages in the entire New Testament, and lots of people agree with that. Someone else has said it is a mountain peak Old Testament passage. Somebody else has said it is a high watermark of all Old Testament prophecies. And that indeed it is. So what we're looking at in Jeremiah 31 is not some obscure, we're going way out on a little small branch somewhere to talk for weeks about something. No, we're taking one of the Bible's most important, one of the Old Testament's most important prophetic passages and seeking to understand what it means and what its implications are for the nation of Israel and for us. Now let me tell you a little bit about Jeremiah. His dates are 650 to 570 BC. The numbers go down when you're BC. 650 to 570. And Jeremiah was an Israelite priest in Jerusalem in those days. He's also known as the weeping prophet. Why was he known? Why is he known as the weeping prophet? Well, read Jeremiah <laughs> and read Lamentations. And there's a lot to weep about, and there's a lot of weeping. But his specific mission that God gave him was to warn the nation of Israel and the people of Judah as well about the impending severe consequences for their apostasy, for their unbelief, and specifically for their idolatry. 
They had become an idolatrous people, breaking God's covenant and worshiping idols. The worship of Canaanite gods had become common, if not rampant, among them. In some places, they, Israel, had even built shrines to Canaanite idols. And so Jeremiah ministered among them for 40 years. For 40 years, he preached and preached and wrote and preached. And the basic part of his message was this, you all need to repent of your idolatry. You all need to repent and turn to God. How successful was his ministry if we measure success by the number of conversions, if we measure success by how the nation responded? It was not at all successful. For 40 years, he preached his heart out and wrote his heart out, and almost nobody listened to him. They didn't repent. They didn't turn to God. They didn't listen to Jeremiah, and his message was not well received. In fact, at one point, the people from his, his hometown, his hometown, were going to kill him, Jeremiah eleven twenty one. Instead, they ended up, they put him in stocks. How would you like to be put in stocks? Jeremiah was put in stocks for his message, you all need to repent of your Canaanite God's worship. And later they threw him in a mud pit where he sank to his knees and was left in there for a while and was eventually pulled out by ropes. And after 40 years of ministry, guess how many converts we know of from the text anyway, guess how many people believed his message? Two. So there were two. There's Jeremiah believed his message, and there were two converts. One is Baruch, his scribe, and the other is a man named Ebed-Melech, who is the other Ethiopian eunuch in the Bible. Remember, there's one of those in the New Testament. There's one of those in the Old Testament. And that eunuch believed the message of Jeremiah and received it, and so did Baruch, his scribe, and of course, Jeremiah believed it. So in all of Old Covenant Israel, from what we can tell, that's many, many people, only three had hearts for God. That's the, that's the nature of, that's the extent of, that's the state of their apostasy and of their unbelief, which, by the way, is much like unbelief in Israel today. Amen? So Israel today is in the same place. They're, they're in a state of unbelief. Are there believing Israelis? Oh, absolutely. I just happened to glance at one right now. She's sitting over there. The best man in Debbie's my wedding. He was a, a saved Jewish guy. And uh, certainly there are others. There's another one I know of anyway in our church. But they're the exception and not the norm. And that's how it was in Jeremiah's day as well. Let me make that clear. Jeremiah ministered during a time in which most of Israel was not saved. He was bringing them the word of God, and most of them said, no thanks. We don't want your ministry. We don't want what, no, we don't want what you're saying. We don't like what you're saying. They were unbelieving. They were apostate. Jeremiah warned them of the consequences for their apostasy and unbelief. He warned them that the armies of Babylon would come and destroy them, destroy Jerusalem, destroy their temple. It did. And they would be taken away into 70 years of Babylon, Babylonian captivity. They said, ha ha, big deal. We don't believe you. And it happened. I mentioned that Jeremiah's ministry was largely one of warning. Let me give you the layout of the book. There are 52 chapters. The first 51 chapters are Jeremiah warning and warning and warning and warning and warning. And the last chapter, chapter 52, is the Babylonians coming and sacking the city. So that's why he's the weeping prophet. It was a terrible, terrible time. 
Let me, give, let me show you. Let's just take a minute and get a feel of the nature of Jeremiah's preaching and teaching and writing ministry. Let's, let's dip into some of his warning passages. What were the people hearing from him to which they were not responding? We'll go to Jeremiah 25. Follow with me, verse 3. For 23 years, remember he went 40, but now we're at the 23-year mark. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, to this day... The word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. You have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear, although the Lord persistently sent to you all his servants, the prophets, saying, turn now every one of you from his evil way and evil deeds and dwell upon the land that the Lord has given you and your fathers from of old and forever. Do not go after other gods to serve and worship them or provoke me to anger with the work of your hands. Then I will do you no harm, said the Lord. Jeremiah chimes back in, yet you have not listened to me, declares the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. There's a taste of the nature of Jeremiah's ministry when he's at year 23. He's just been preaching and preaching, and other prophets have been preaching and preaching this stuff for 23 years at this point. Let's go on a little in the same chapter, chapter 25, verse 8. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant. Interesting. God constricts a pagan king to do his will when his unregenerate, stubborn, hard-hearted people would not. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing, and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish from them the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years, Jeremiah 25, 8 through 11. Well, that's how the whole book reads. You want me to preach through the whole book? <laughs> that's, how, that's how the whole, our nation could use it. That's how the whole book reads. By contrast, in Jeremiah 31, there's a ray of hope, a very bright, a very brilliant white ray of hope. Jeremiah 31 is altogether different. There's a ray of hope for the future and the promise of better days. So now we come to Jeremiah 31, verse 31. We're starting our exposition now. Let's dive in. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Notice the opening word, behold. Whenever God in his word says, behold, you all should behold. Pay attention, open your eyes, check this out, look at this, notice this, behold, the days are coming. This is a message of hope. You're in bad days, you're in bad shape, worst days are coming, Nebuchadnezzar's coming, gonna ruin your city, gonna destroy your temple, gonna haul you off for 70 years of captivity, but there's a ray of hope. Behold, the days are coming. Here's a question for you. Have those days yet come? And the answer is yes. Those days came when our Lord Jesus Christ came, God in the flesh. 
He came and inaugurated this new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Those days came when Christ came. Those days came 2,000 years ago. Our Savior ratified the new covenant when he became the sacrificial lamb. Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant. Look at the phrase, new covenant. That's in contrast to which covenant? The Mosaic covenant, which is the old covenant. And in contrast to that covenant, I'm going to make a new covenant. The book, the author of Hebrews, we'll see this in a minute, tells us that as soon as God said, as soon as Jeremiah wrote, as soon as he preached and delivered to the people the word new, the old one started becoming old. And it has by now, it long ago vanished away. In fact, it was fulfilled in Christ. But, but Jeremiah tells them, God's going to make a new covenant. There's going to be a change of covenant. There's going to be a better covenant. We will celebrate the blood of that covenant in a little while when we take our little cups of grape juice and drink them down in remembrance of Christ shedding his blood of the new covenant for the remission of our sins. That's what Jeremiah is referring to, what Christ would do. Let's look at how Christ describes that cup. Let's jump to Luke 22 for a moment, verse 19. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. So what Christ did when he celebrated the last Passover and the first communion with his disciples in that upper room, is he inaugurated, he instituted, he foretold by a couple of days his shed blood of the new covenant. The author of Hebrews spends a lot of time in Jeremiah 31, spends a lot of time expounding on the new covenant. Let's dip into Hebrews for a minute just so we'll see that we are indeed in the days of this new covenant. It has been ratified by Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, but as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant, the one by Moses, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So the author of Hebrews is explaining this whole bit about a new covenant. What was the old? The old was the Mosaic, and the new was needed because the old was flawed. All the old did was show you your sin. It had no power to save you. It had no power to, to regenerate you. Paul says it was a ministry of condemnation. So all it did was condemn you so that you should flee to Christ, but they didn't. It was powerless to make you a new creature in Christ. So the author of Hebrews says that, then he quotes our passage, Jeremiah 31, and then let's pick it up on the other side. He says in Hebrews 8.13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. That's God's word, that's his word, that's not my word. The Bible says the Mosaic covenant is obsolete. It was made obsolete when Christ shed his blood on Calvary's cross. We are no longer under the Mosaic covenant, we are, we are never struggling under the burdens of the Mosaic Covenant. It, it, it was rendered obsolete, and the author goes on. And what is becoming obsolete in his day and growing old is ready to vanish away. 
There was perhaps an overlap period, a time period in which it was there, but it was vanishing rapidly. That time period was from Christ's death on Calvary's cross until AD 70, when God called another warlord, another general and his people. This time it was Titus and the Romans, and God called them in to be his servants, and they destroyed Jerusalem, and they destroyed the temple, never to be rebuilt, sacrifices never to be offered again. What was becoming obsolete was ready to vanish away. And my brothers and sisters, we live in the day where it has vanished. Hebrews 9.15, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Can you hang with me for a little more from Hebrews? All right, thank you, brother. Love you, man. Over in chapter 12, Hebrews 12.22 to 24. After he said for a while, we're not reading this part, you have, you, in coming to Christ, you have not come to Mount Sinai. And he describes how terrifying it was to be at Mount Sinai. But instead, Hebrews 12, 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. If you're in Christ, you have. And you have come to the city of the living God. You have come to the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And you have come to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And you have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. So the author of to the Hebrews makes a lot Spends a lot of time on this new covenant. We've just kind of dipped into it. And when Jeremiah says the days are coming, let's make it very clear. Those days have come and we are in them. We are in the days that Jeremiah describes. And he's going to describe what the kingdom of God is like in those days. We are in those days. Are you in those days? Well, you're in those days. Are you in Christ? Are you in the new covenant? Have you called upon the name of the Lord Jesus? Have you bowed before the Lamb of God and his shed blood? We're in those days. But let's notice now in particular, back to verse 31, with whom is this new covenant said to be made? Verse 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, with whom? With the house of Israel and the house of Judah. All right, here's a quiz. With whom is the covenant made? With the house of Israel, and the house of Judah. Very good, you all, you all did good. It's made with the Jewish people. This new covenant is made with the people of Israel. Now, he's going to describe the covenant, and the only people actually in it are believing people. The only people in it are regenerate people. The only people in it have their sins forgiven and their transgressions are covered. The only people in it have hearts for God and the law of God written in their heart, and they love God and they love his law. The only people in it are regenerate people of God. They're the ones who are in the new covenant. So here's a question for you. There are implications for current Israel. Are current Israelites and mass in any covenant with God? Well, they're not in the old covenant anymore because it was fulfilled in Christ. It's obsolete. It's gone. It's over. Nobody's in the Mosaic covenant anymore. It doesn't exist. You can read about what it was, but it isn't there. God terminated that covenant. God closed that covenant. God shut down that covenant. And instead, he put in its place a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And, and the only people we'll see who are in that covenant are believing Israelites and believing Gentiles are in it too. We'll see that in a minute. So here's a question for you. What does that say about the status of current Israel, most of whom are in unbelief? 
most of whom reject Christ, reject Jeremiah, reject the word of God, reject everything, believe all kinds of things. What does it say about them? Well, it says that they're the same as my next door neighbor who are not in Christ. They're lost. That's all it says. They're like anybody else on the planet who's lost. They've forsaken their God and they're lost. And they're not in any covenant with God. Current Israel in its unbelieving state is not in any covenant with God. Let me tell you a little bit more about that. We won't take the time to go here, but if we went to the book of Hosea, God says to Hosea, I want you to marry that girl over there. Her name is Gomer. I'm glad God didn't ask me to marry a woman named Gomer, by the way. In our day, that doesn't fly so good. But anyway, he married Gomer, and they had a child, and God told him, Here, I'm giving you the name. I want you to name your child Hebrew, Lo-Ami. This came up recently. We're hearing it again. What does Lo-Ami mean in the Hebrew? It means not my people. Why do, you, why do you name your child not my people? Why does God want that? He goes on to say, because you, Israel, are not my people, and I am not your God. Now, that's the state of current Israel. They're in the same boat, maybe worse. They are less, in any visible way, the people of God. And, and God would say of them, just as he said of them in the day of Hosea, those are not my people, and I am not their God. If if you go to a Jewish synagogue and they're worshiping in their Jewish synagogue in their Jewish way, rejecting, in fact, the prophets, rejecting, in fact, the great prophet Jesus Christ, would you look in their window and say, oh, isn't that beautiful? They're worshiping God in their Hebrew way. Well, you'd be wrong. God doesn't look at that and say, isn't that beautiful? They're worshiping me in their Hebrew way. No, God says, they're not my people and I'm not their God. And he's not at all pleased by what they do. And he doesn't have their hearts, and they're not really worshiping him. They're worshiping something else. They have rejected him. But the covenant is with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. You say, well, all right then, Mr. Smarty Pants. Then what are we Gentiles doing in there? I'm not Israeli. I'm, I'm not Jewish. I'm not the house of Judah. What about us Gentiles? What are we doing in Jeremiah's new covenant? Let me explain this. We're going to see more of this as it goes. Let me give you the, here's the heads up up front. Here's what God did. When Jesus Christ came, he called out of Israel, most of whom were unbelieving in that day. He called out the believers. He separated out the believers. And they became his new covenant people. And he, then he engrafted, he grafted Gentiles in with them. And he said in Ephesians 2, thus making one new thing, one new man, which is what? The church of Jesus Christ. The church of Jesus Christ is new covenant Israel, and Gentiles have been grafted in. Let, let me show you this from the Bible. First, oh slide man, take us to Matthew 3, please. Verse 11. Here's John the Baptist talking about Jesus Christ. John says to his people, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, you want that baptism, and fire. You do not want the fire, I'll tell you why. Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn, there's the fire, with unquenchable fire, there's the fire. You don't want the fire. You don't want the baptism of fire, but you do want the baptism of the Holy Spirit. If you get the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you're regenerate and you're saved. If you get the baptism of fire, well, you've... Uh, 
gone through judgment and ended up in hell. But what's, what's John telling us Jesus is going to do? Verse 12, his winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. What does that mean? Jesus is going to come to his threshing floor, Israel, national Israel, the old covenant people of God, and he's got a winnowing fork. What's that? That's a pitchfork. What would you do? Well, you've got wheat and chaff, and you want to separate them. So you go up to a high place where there's a lot of wind, and you build a threshing floor, and you haul your wheat up there, put it on the floor, you get your pitchfork, you throw it up into the air, the wind blows away the chaff, and the wheat drops. And by the end of the day, you've got the wheat separated out from the chaff. The chaff is blown away. That's the imagery John the Baptist is using. He's telling us Christ is coming, and he's going to do that to his threshing floor. He's going to do that with Israel. He's going to separate the wheat from the chaff in Israel. Then he takes the wheat and he starts his new covenant people. He takes the believers and he starts a new thing called the church. And how do Gentiles come into that? We are engrafted. We are added to them. Slide man, Romans 11, please. Verse 17. Paul explains this in Romans 11. But if some of the branches were broken off, that's what Christ did, different imagery. He broke off branches. The dead branches, the unbelieving branches, the branches that were not in covenant with God, he broke off. He's redefining who are going to be his people. His people are going to be new covenant people. They're going to be the believers. He's calling out the believers. He's breaking off the unbelievers. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Johnny Gentile, although a wild olive shoot, are you a Gentile? The word of God says you are a wild olive shoot. Will you accept that? Will you receive that? You're not by blood from the Abrahamic stock, though you are by faith. You're a wild olive shoot. And you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, believing Israelis who were not broken off, and you now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, the Abrahamic covenant. You share in that. Unbelieving Israelites were broken off. The believing Israelites were the people with whom he made his new covenant, and believing Gentiles are grafted in with them. Somebody asked me after the early service, and I should have thought to address this question, but I hadn't. Somebody asked me, are, is, what you're talking about, is that this thing I hear about, is this replacement theology? Uh, no. This is not replacement. Israel is still Israel, but redefined to be believers among Israel. And the church is Israeli. The, the new covenant is with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. We Gentiles are add-ons. We're grafted in. We're the larger number now, but we're grafted in. We're going to go to Romans 11 later in the series and see how God may be saying there's going to come a day when national Israel and mass will repent and come into the one new man and come into the church and believe on the Lord Jesus. But what are Gentiles doing in the new covenant? We've been grafted in as those who are blessed by the one who came from Abraham. And what again, what should we think of current non-believing Israelites? Are they still God's people? Well, they are not because of their unbelief. They've been broken off. They've been taken off the threshing floor. The new covenant is all believers and Gentiles are grafted in. Now, now we're going to, Jeremiah starts to describe the characteristics of the believers, characteristics of people who are in the new covenant and how they differ from characteristics of the people who are in the old covenant. So it gets really applicable to us. Here's a lot of the us part of this sermon series. Notice what he tells us, verse 32. This new covenant will be not like, just 
pause there. Did everybody notice those two words? Put your finger on them. Don't let them get away. What do they say? Not like. Say it with me. Not like. Do it again louder. Not like. Take out a blank sheet of paper. That's it. Answer this question. It's multiple choice. Is the new covenant like A or B, not like the old covenant? The new covenant is not like B. One of you forgot what letter that was. So Jeremiah tells us, God tells us, the new covenant will dramatically differ from the old covenant. There is radical discontinuity between the new covenant and what its people look like and the old covenant and what its people look like. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. So here's an important thing we learn about the new covenant. It's not like the old. Now, I'm emphasizing that to you because, do I even want to get into this? I do. Um, Because we have brothers and sisters in Christ, and they are, and we esteem them and love them and embrace them, and I could go to one of their churches and sit under their ministry, and they, they baptize their infants. Why do they do that? Why don't we baptize our infants? Because we're going to understand from Jeremiah 31, and there are other reasons in the Bible, but this is a central one. We understand that the only people actually in the new covenant are believers, are regenerate, are forgiven. Jeremiah is going to describe all this, have new hearts. And so we're only going to give the baptism, one of the signs of the covenant, to believers when they publicly profess their faith. I have believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my God and my Savior. My sins are washed away in his shed blood. Hallelujah. We'll baptize that person. All right? Why do they baptize infants? Because, here's a major part of why, honestly, because when they wind up When they finish their job in Jeremiah 31, they say the new covenant is like the old covenant. And under the old covenant, the children of the covenant people were included in the covenant. They got the sign. And so like that, under the new covenant, our children should be included in the covenant and they should get the sign. This is a major plank in the house that our brothers and sisters in Christ who are Presbyterian that they they erect. I just want to hasten to say, again, I esteem them. Like, a lot of them live on my bookshelves. Well, they're they're dead, but they're on my bookshelves. That sounded terrible. (laughs) Their books are on my bookshelves, and I esteem them and learn from them. But I took down, you know, one of the great theologians of the entire church age has to be John Calvin. Like, I am big into Calvin. I have a portrait of John Calvin on the wall in my study. It's big. I really like John Calvin, but a whole lot of others too. And I took down John Calvin's commentary on Jeremiah 31 and read what he said. And he wound up saying, by the time he got done explaining it all, he said, the new covenant is the same as the old covenant. It's the same. Now, what does Jeremiah say? This is a quiz. What does Jeremiah say? What are the two words? Not like. Let's go with Jeremiah, all right? The new covenant is not like, we're going to see how. He's going to explain that in a lot of ways. Not like the covenant that I made. Well, how is it not like? Verse 33, here we go. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it 
on their hearts. That's number one in how the new covenant is radically unlike the old covenant. Here's the first specific thing. There's more, but here's what Jeremiah tells us. He wants us to understand how the new covenant differs from the old. What was true in the old? It was a mixed bag, believers and unbelievers, and they were all in that covenant. Most of them in Jeremiah's time, frankly, most of them, most of the whole time, were not believing, did not have hearts for God, but they were in that covenant, and there were believers in that covenant, and it was a mixed bag. God says, I'm done with that kind of covenant. They just broke and broke and broke and broke my, I'm going to make a new covenant. Everybody in my new covenant will be a believer. Everybody in my new covenant will be saved. The only people in that new covenant have hearts for God. Let me describe them in this way. Here's the first way. I will put my law within them. Under the old covenant, where was God's law in most of them? It was on those tablets of stone. And they were deposited in the ark. And the ark was kept in the temple or the tent prior to that, the tabernacle. God says, I'm changing the location of, of where my law resides. And it will now be, in the new covenant, my law is inside every believer, every person in that covenant. In fact, he says, let me explain that more. And I will write it, my law, on their hearts. On their hearts. Everybody who's in the new covenant, that is true of them, they have God's law written on their heart. If you're saved, God's law is written on your heart. If you're regenerate, God's law is written on your heart. If your sins are forgiven, God's law is written on your heart. This is true of every soul who's in the new covenant. God says, I'm going to put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. What do you know about hearts as they're described in the Bible? What's significant about hearts? Why does he say, I'll put it in their hearts? Well, what do we do with our hearts? We love things. Our hearts are what we love things with. You say to your wife, honey, I love you with all my heart. We love with our hearts. And that was true in the Bible. And God's saying, I'm going to put my law in a place where they will love it. Meaning, I'm going to change their heart. Every one of them has a changed heart, has a new heart. And they love the things of God. And they love God. I'm done with the covenant where most of them didn't love me. I'm done with the covenant where most of them didn't have my law in my heart. I'm going to have a covenant where they're only believers. They're all regenerate. They all have my law in them. They all love it. They all love me. They all love God. They all love the things of God. That is starkly, dramatically unlike the old covenant. That's a change. And that is some of why we baptize believers only. We're trying to discern, is this somebody who has the law of God in their heart? Ultimately, God's the fruit inspector. We just mainly go with their profession. But if something about their life dramatically indicates doesn't seem like the law of God is in their heart, we might want to hold on that baptism and that profession. He goes on further to say, yeah, I already did it, and I will write it in their hearts. So this has implications for us. Let's say you have a, a young son or daughter, and they say, you know, Mommy, I, I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and I'm saved. What should you do? I believe them. Take them at their word. But then it, it is legitimate to start looking for some child-level indications of, wait, do they have what the new covenant says they have? They're not going to have it like an adult, but 
Can I distinguish anything in their heart now that is a heart for God? Do they have a heart for the things of God at a children level? Do they have, doesn't mean they can sit through a sermon. Do they have a heart for the things of God at, at their level? Maybe they get a little older and it becomes really clear. They do not. They do not have that heart. And maybe they go off into the far country. Could they still be a true believer? Maybe. I'm not the fruit inspector. You're not the fruit inspector. God knows the hearts. But at the very least, when they're out in the far country, we're saying, well, I don't know their heart, but it doesn't look good. They don't look like somebody who's in Jeremiah's new covenant, God's new covenant. They don't look like somebody with a heart. Change the metaphor. I'm trying to find a spiritual pulse all over their soul, and I'm not finding one anywhere. They want nothing to do with Christ. They want everything to do with a worldly bunch. They're out there living the party life. Is it possible for a Christian to fall low? Well, it is. For how long? That's up to God. I'm not going to say. I'm not going to judge that. But at least while they're out there in the far country, you're saying, man, it doesn't look good. Instead of saying, yeah, but I remember when Johnny prayed the prayer. Listen, it's easy to get a kid to pray a prayer. What you're looking for is, do they have a heart? There are implications of this for baptism. We want to baptize those who have the heart. Let me tell you some more about that heart. Let's skip over to Deuteronomy 6. Hey, we were there recently. Let's go there again. Deuteronomy 6, 4, here's what they have. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. That's what new hearts do. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. That's what new hearts do. And you shall teach them diligently to your children. That's what new hearts will want to do. Deuteronomy 30 in verse 6 sheds light. Verse 6, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, if they believe, so that you will love the Lord your God. That's what hearts do. With all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So Jeremiah's first mark of a new covenant heart is God's word went internal with them. And they love it. They love the things of God. Are there gradations of love? Because they're 30%, 60%, 100%? Yeah, there is. But you can at least find the 30%. They love the things of God. Do you remember that last week when we were looking at the marks of a church, the fourth mark from the nine marks people in Washington, D.C., great people, their fourth mark was this. I'll put it up. A biblical understanding of conversion. Some of what we're working at here in Jeremiah 31 is we're, we're, we're clarifying our biblical understanding of conversion. Many evangelicals have a truncated understanding of what's involved in conversion. They have half of the picture. Here's the half they have. Well, if you believe, your sins are forgiven. God does something for you when you believe. The thing he does for you is your sins are forgiven. They've believed, so their sins are forgiven. Not recognizing that God also always does something in you. What does he do in you? He changes your heart. He regenerates you. He gives you a new heart. He writes his law in there in your heart so that now you find yourself saying, man, I love the things of God. Where did that come from? God wrote it in there when you believed on the Lord Jesus. This comes out again in Ezekiel 36, verse 26, the sister passage, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone. That stony heart's like an M1 tank. The word of God bounces off of it like BBs. No, I'm gonna remove that M1 heart 
And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. Flesh not as in worldly, flesh as in soft. The word of God penetrates it easily. The word goes in and bears fruit. Do you have that new heart? Has God written his law in your heart? Can you say at least to some degree with David the psalmist, oh, how I love thy law. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength? So what are we learning about the new covenant? I have a minute and 16 seconds. Let's go to the summary statement slide, man, please. So number one, we've seen that Jesus inaugurated the new covenant with Israel, and we Gentiles are grafted in. Bless the Lord. And the new covenant is not like the old. How? Everyone in the new covenant is saved. They have a new heart. That's point three. Everyone in the new covenant has a heart for God and for God's word. Well, there's much more Jeremiah wants to tell us. That I'll have to wait for next week, Lord willing. Please bow and pray with me. Father, thank you for this time in your holy word. And there are perhaps people with us today, O Lord, who do not know Jesus Christ as their Lord, their God, their Savior. We pray that you will have mercy upon them, that you will send the Holy Spirit as the hound of heaven to chase them up the tree, the tree of Calvary, where they may call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Please give me that new heart. Forgive me my trespasses. Please give me the free gift of everlasting life. I bow the knee and confess Jesus as Lord. Father, because of your saving grace, many of us have done so. You've included us in the new covenant. We bless you and praise you. And ask, O Lord, that we may love you more thoroughly and more deeply with all our heart and all our soul, all our mind and all our strength that we may love your kingdom and your ways and your word like new covenant believers ought to. And we ask that you would receive honor and blessing, glory and praise from our love and from our lives. We ask for all in the name of Jesus Christ, with thanksgiving, amen.